You are listening to audio from Central Baptist Church in Mansfield, Texas. If you would like to get more involved or get more information about our church, stick around after the message. If you have your Bibles, join me, 1 Corinthians chapter number 6. 1 Corinthians chapter number 6. We end our series today on Uncensored. I hope it has been helpful for you. We're preaching on holy sexuality today. I always like to see what kids have to say about marriage because uh, you remember that old show, Kids Say the Darndest Things? Love that show. Um, so I, I got a few. Uh, a boy named Alan who was 10 years old said this, no person really decides before they grow up who they're going to marry. God decides it way before then, and you get to find out later who you're stuck with. Come on, y'all. <laughs> I think that's the other way around, brother. <laughs> Corey, age seven, said this, love will find you, even if you're trying to hide from it. I've been trying to hide from it since I was five, but the girls keep finding me. <laughs> Lori, the only girl I found who's eight, was asked what her mom and dad have in common. She quickly responded, well, my little brother was just born, and I know now they both don't want to have any more kids. Gavin, who was eight, gave his insight into why married couples often hold hands. He said, they want to make sure their rings don't fall off because they paid good money for them. Good advice. As a child, I had the wrong impression about many things. One of the things I was wrong about was I thought every other family that lived was raised like I was being raised. All the other kids had similar bedrooms, similar toys. Uh, Their homes had similar rules. I thought that everybody else was being raised just like me. It wasn't until I went to someone else's house for the first time and got to spend the night that I found out that everybody's raised different. And each house has their own set of rules. Every parent has their own sets of rules for their kids. How many of us were raised with really strict parents? Oh, all right. Some kids are in the room telling on mommy and daddy right now. Very good. I had very strict parents. Um, Other kids could watch movies. The only movies I was allowed to watch was McGee and Me and Salty. Come on. (laughs) Do you all know who Salty is? Yes. I think he's still around, at least on YouTube somewhere. Um, How about McGee and Me? Do you all know McGee and Me? Oh, yeah. I love McGee and Me. Um, I also was amazed. I went to one of my friend's house, and, man, we played all day, sweated, got dirty. And then Mom yelled out the back door and said, hey, it's time to go to bed. And so we ran inside, and I was thinking, okay, we're going to go clean up, take baths. And, no, they just went to bed. I was like, whoa. Um, 
I also realized that, you know, in our house, we had very strict bedtimes, get-up times. Um, my dad still believes that if the sun beats you getting up, then you are sleeping in. Um, so we'd get woken up before the sun got uh, up all the time. And so we went to bed pretty pretty early each and every night. But I went to other people's houses, and they didn't have those rules. I'm like, what in the world? It is dark outside. Why aren't we sleeping yet? But the biggest difference wasn't just between friends that I went to school with, but I found that there are a lot of different rules between city folks and country folks. Yeah, y'all are, yeah, yeah. how many of y'all are country folks? I was a city kid, right? And I ended up making a friend at the camp I went to. Um, it was in Hawks, Michigan. Does anybody know where Hawks, Michigan is? It's a little country town way up here. Come on, Michiganders. You know what I'm talking about. Way up there. Um, lower Peninsula, but only like 15 minutes from Mackinac Bridge. It was a beautiful country, but it's only like 500 people that lived in that little town. All right. About half of them did meth. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> anyways, anyways, um, that's not the rules I'm talking about. Um, but um, the rules were completely different. When I hit 14, I was really excited because once I got to my 10th month, I could go to driver's ed. I mean, city folks, we have all kinds of rules for driving. Uh, you're 14 months or 14 years, 10 months. You can go uh, to driving school. We had very strict driving schools in Michigan. Texas doesn't. Can I get a witness? Come on. <laughs> um, and so we went to these driving schools. You had to drive a certain amount with an instructor. You, you had to drive a certain amount with your parents. Um, uh, you had to pass a driving test, a written test. And then once you got your driver's license, there were still rules. You couldn't drive past a certain uh, time of the day. You could only drive with one other person in the car unless it was a parent. Um, and all these different driving rules for us city folks. I went to his house during the summer. He was younger than me. And dad said, okay, we're going to go to town and get something. And I was thinking, okay, everybody's going. No. He gave the keys to his 12-year-old son and said, go to town. I learned the rule was as long as your feet can touch the pedal and you can see over the steering wheel, you could drive. And I'm like, this is awesome. I asked if I could drive home. They didn't let me. Uh, but another big change was um, the amount of guns that some country folks have. I grew up in just north of Detroit. I heard guns, but I, I, didn't, I didn't own any guns. Our security was a 120-pound German Shepherd, and that was it. Um, but we, when I went to his house, they didn't have video games. Uh, they didn't hardly watch any TV. Really, all they did was go outside and shoot stuff. Well, that was it. They actually had to make a rule. And I was there for this family meeting that they had. The family meeting was, you can't shoot your guns in the house. I was like, this needed to be explained to you? But they weren't shooting their guns at each other, which I was grateful for. Um, uh, and they weren't shooting guns inside the house at something in the house. If a coyote came during the night or a rabbit or something and they saw it, they would aim outside the window and shoot at it. I'm getting the impression that some of you do this. Um, and there is a lot of pushback in this meeting. And it wasn't just the kids. Dad was pushing back Emma too. Um, and it was amazing to see how different everything was. Um, and typically when I would go back home, 
I would be thinking to myself or maybe even expressing it out loud, and I would be upset about the rules that I had to live under. I would say things like, it's not fair. My friends get to do that. Why can't I? I would say, you're just trying to uh, take away fun from me. But 25 years later now, I look back, and I'm grateful for every rule my parents gave me. I can look back and see they gave me those rules as guardrails, not to keep me from fun, but to protect me in my innocence as a child. Do you know what we've been doing for the last two months? We've looked at the Bible, at a bunch of rules our Heavenly Father has placed around sex. Those rules aren't there to keep us from having fun, but to protect us from harm. But more than that, they are rules given from a loving father trying to show us there is a better way. Let's look at some of those today. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse number 15 says this, Know ye not that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? God forbid. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. So flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sins against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not of your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. Let's pray. God, we love you. I pray, Lord, that as we go through this sermon today, I pray, Lord, that if there's an issue in our hearts, I pray that they'll come to the surface. Lord, we'll repent and get right. I pray that we realize that there is a right way, but, Lord, it's also a better way. Help us to see that today. In your name I pray. Amen. Number one, it really is better. We wrap up our series today, and for most of our series, we've centered on really two passages, 1 Corinthians 7 and the beginning of your Bible, Genesis 1 and 2. We have looked at the beginning to show how our creator designed the world, our bodies, and how marriage should be. We saw last week how God made male and female. Um, God's the one that designed it that way. It's not a choice that we get to make. God made the choice for us. We, we saw that after God made man and female, he revealed at least some of his plan to them. And one of the parts of his plan was to marry them. And so God was the first minister of the first wedding ever. And he married Adam and Eve. Shortly after marriage, he gave them commands, rules to follow. He, he told them to be fruitful and multiply. Don't you love God? He doesn't give them any clothes. And then he tells them, get busy. Amen. Be fruitful and multiply. He tells them to rule over creation. But there is one thing that they're supposed to stay away from. There's a tree in the center of the garden. And he tells them, don't eat of that fruit. God marries them and he tells them that you leave father and mother, which is interesting because they didn't have a father or mother. But he's trying to show them a pattern for generations to follow to follow. Um, he tells them that when you leave, then you cleave to one another. You, you are bound together. 
It's a beautiful picture that God is trying to explain. You, you leave what you had, even though it may be good, and you cleave, and it, the promise is, is it's better. You leave, and then you cleave. And then God is the one that started this um, tradition of giving wedding presents. The best. Do you know what the wedding present was? It was sex. Aren't you glad you came to church today? <laughs> well, that's what it was. He's the one that told them to be fruitful and multiply. He's the one that told them that they would be one flesh. And this idea is that sex isn't just physical. It's emotional. It's even spiritual. When Jesus was asked about marriage and divorce, he backs up this teaching. He doesn't give a new answer. In fact, he takes the Pharisees back to the beginning. In Matthew 19, he talks not first about divorce. He, he brings up marriage as God formed it in Genesis chapter 2. Jesus shows them in us the designer's design, the plan of our planner, and what our creator created. God gave a husband and a wife a wonderful gift, a gift that would lead to a powerful intimate relationship between a man and his wife when God gave this wedding present it was within the boundaries of a marriage relationship between the first man and the first woman and it was good it could be enjoyed as much as they were pleased to enjoy it without any fear without any shame without any guilt and there were no negative consequences because it was good so we look at a world, I don't think we have to look very hard to see that for the most part, at least in our culture, when we look at sexual relationships, most of it is not good. What happened between Genesis 2 and what's going on in our world today? You know what happened? Genesis 3 happened. The enemy shows up and tempts Adam and Eve. The one tree that they were to avoid, the fruit on the tree that they weren't to eat, was the point where mankind fell into sin. Satan simply approaches Eve around the tree and asks, well, why can't you eat that? Eve, what kind of God would deny you your desires? Eve... What kind of God would keep you from something good? Because the text in Genesis 3 tells us that when she looked at the tree, she saw that the fruit was good. Eve, why would God keep you from good? Eve, do you realize you can be your own God? And you can choose for yourself what is right and what is wrong. When Adam and Eve ate, they broke their loving father's rule and started living by their own sets of rules they probably had a mindset like many maybe even in the room have well I'm an adult I'm not going to have someone else tell me what I should do in 2023 we are struggling because of what happened all the way back at chapter 3 of Genesis there's a forbidden fruit that looks so good 
And we can rationalize with the best of them why we should be allowed to enjoy whatever our heart desires. Really, our definition of sexuality will come, it will just come down to answering this question. Will I follow the Lord or will I follow the liar? After Adam and Eve followed the liar, we began to see the consequences of their actions. We see just how quickly this one bite of fruit hit Adam and Eve in their sexuality. Where once they stood naked and unashamed, they now stand full of shame. And the reaction is to cover themselves. There has been nothing but consequences for following the liar ever since. 1 Corinthians 6 shows us that sexual sins have different consequences for sin than other sins. For Christians, there's two reasons why this is true. The first reason is our relationship with Jesus. Herman Bavinck says this, Sexual sin is especially serious because it defiles the body of Christ. Verses number 15 and 16 tell us this. When a Christian sins against their own body, it is extra heinous because of their union with Jesus. Since our bodies are now the temple, when we sin sexually, we take Jesus with us. The second reason is it, uh, that it's a more heinous sin is because of what it does to our own bodies. When it comes to sexual sin, it's in a category all of its own. Verse 18 tells us that we sin against our own body. Listen, it's not because God gets more bent out of shape over this than other sins. No. It's because of the way this sin impacts us. The reason sexual sin is in a category all on its own is because of the lifelong pain it does to all of us. People in this room are still carrying the pain from what happened to them when they were children or teenagers. It's not just sexual assault or molestation, though. It's choices that we made when we were younger that many of us still carry the shame and guilt of today. Fornication is a destructive sin. It is the only sin mentioned in the entire Bible that says it's a sin against our own bodies. It destroys purity, honor, and reputation. It destroys homes, it destroys body and mind, it destroys our souls. Sexual sins have many consequences. Sex outside of God's plan leads to addiction, pain, even disease. Pornography ruins the brain like illicit drugs. We need to make sure we understand that not all sins are the same. Hear me. The Bible doesn't view sins as the same here on earth. There are different consequences for different sins. This is a clear teaching from the beginning of the Bible. Just consider sin and your pastor. You need to know that your pastor is a sinner. My wife is sitting over there, and she can detail all of that I do at my house. She will tell you all of the things that I've done. Now, it's been a few years. I still sin. Okay. But imagine, thinking about your pastor now. If I watched a rated R movie at my home this evening, it's quiet at the house, I get to watch something I want. It doesn't happen very often. I get to watch something I want. I turn it on, never seen it before, and there's a scene in there where there's nudity. 
Is it a sin? Most certainly. Of course. What are the consequences for your preacher? If the sin became public, public repentance would probably be the only consequence. I probably won't lose my marriage. I probably wouldn't lose my position here at the church, especially if I repented. But if I cheat on my wife, I still serve Central Baptist Church? I appreciate that. I shouldn't be. Shouldn't be. Would I lose my marriage? There's a pretty good chance. Would I only get my boys on the weekends? I mean, there's a pretty good chance. But would I be thrown in jail? My wife might want me to be, but I probably wouldn't be thrown. Now, if I rape someone, not only would I lose my position here, not only would I uh, lose my marriage, probably my parental rights, but I will also be thrown in jail. You see, there's different consequences for different sins. It has always been this way since there has been sin. Realize in the Old Testament, there were uh, 600 laws. 40 of them carry the death penalty. So right there we can see that God viewed different than he viewed the other 560. Those are sinful actions, but all of them have different consequences. The consequences here on earth for sin aren't the same. Now the ultimate for any and all sins is the same. Eternal damnation in a place called hell. But the consequences on earth vary. Sexual sins, according to 1 Corinthians 6, and many other portions of Scripture are more painful and have longer lasting and deep consequences. Now, just consider for a moment what a healthy and holy relationship between a husband and wife and how they enjoy it, and then imagine any negative consequences they may face. Friend, there are none. Unless you don't like kids. <laughs> but besides that, there are none. Friend, the Bible teaches that the best sex is married sex. Amen. You know why I'm saying amen? Because I'm married. <laughs> amen. Listen, God designed it for married couples to enjoy. And it was meant to be better that way. Number two, holy sexuality. In the first series of 2023, we looked at holiness. God's desire for all of us is for all of his children to be holy. And he gives us the reason. He says, because I am holy, you should be holy. We can't be truly holy unless we have holy sexuality. Verse 19 talks about the temple that God has made. And we don't have to go to Jerusalem to the temple any longer because God has made us the temple. And so where once the temple in Jerusalem was the picture of God's presence and his holiness, now you and I get to be the physical representation of the holiness of God wherever we go. We must also remember, because especially the last two services, that the goal of our sexuality isn't heterosexuality. It's not the goal. I am not even a proponent for a term like that. I believe all of these terms, heterosexuality, homosexuality, bisexual, pansexual, all of them come just from modern psychology and not the word of God. And they relate a dangerous message about our identity. Remember, sex is a behavior, not an identity. For instance... 
If someone here struggles with homosexuality, our goal wouldn't be to turn them hetero. Are you surprised? Our goal would be holiness. The goal here isn't to make a homosexual heterosexual. Heterosexuality is not the goal. I know some of you are like, well, preacher, you can't be our pastor next week. Listen to me. The goal is sharing the gospel and having that person be changed by the gospel, have their sins be forgiven, and then have the power of God to overcome their sins residing within them by the person of the Holy Spirit. That's the goal. Friend, we can't relate heterosexuality with holiness. Heterosexuality isn't going to get anybody in this room to heaven. In fact, there are more heterosexual sins in the Bible than any other types of sexual sins. Christian, all because you have the thought of yourself as heterosexual, it doesn't mean that you are more holy than the person who practices homosexuality. And it's the truth. Friend, we may believe homosexuality is a sin, but there are lists of sins heterosexuals practice, and you don't get a pass just because the world calls you heterosexual. Amen, preacher. Let me prove it to you. Hebrews 13, verse 4 says this, Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed is undefiled. God declares that only sex between a husband and a wife is holy. In fact, here we see that sexual desire and sexual expression are good things if they're used in the right place. For sexual expression outside that one relationship, God condemns it as sinful. Look what he says. For whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. Do you know what those sins are? They are what our world would call heterosexual sins. And friend, they are still sinful. In a world that blurs the lines of sexual morality into various shades of gray, we must realize that biblical sexuality is very black and white. Holy sexuality consists of two paths. Chastity and singleness and faithfulness in marriage. Chastity is more than simply abstaining from extramarital sex. It conveys purity and holiness. Faithfulness is more than merely maintaining chastity and avoiding illicit sex. It, uh, it conveys covenantal commitment to your spouse. Both of these embody the only correct biblical sexual ethic and exposes the only, uh, only sexual behavior that God can bless. So let's drop the worldly labels and pursue holy sexuality. How do we keep our sexuality holy? Paul gives us a clear command in verse 18. He says to flee. It means to run away. He does not say to endure temptation. Listen to me. The Bible doesn't tell us here to just be strong in it. The Bible doesn't tell us here to just endure all this temptation. The Bible tells us to endure trials multiple times. But the Bible doesn't tell us here specifically to endure sexual temptation. The Bible tells us here in verse 18 to run from it, to get away from it, to be as far as you can from it. Uh, listen to me. If something comes across your TV screen and you have the power to change it, the Bible is telling you to change the channel. If you are going to a movie and there are things on the screen that are unbiblical, you have two legs, get out of there. 
to run away. Think about Joseph. What did Joseph do? He was in Potiphar's house doing work for his master. And here comes Potiphar's wife thinking that Joseph is hot stuff. She tries to uh, seduce him into a relationship. She even starts to take off his clothes. And what does he do? He runs away. He flees. Leave the party if you get into a situation you're not supposed to be in. On a business trip, don't go to places that the world will uh, offer this kind of temptation. Sometimes you'll need to flee an entire place. If you keep seeing him or her, don't go back to that restaurant. Change your gym. Listen, even change your job. Your marriage is worth it. In our digital world, there are two tools that you can use to avoid this type of temptation. Your mouse and your remote control. When the image pops up on your screen, turn it off. If you can't control your computer screen or your cell phone, throw them away. You don't need them. When something hits your TV screen, change the channel. Watch something else. Parents, help your kids in this area. Put software on every device. Allow no computers in the bedroom. Whatever works best for your family, make sure that temptation isn't something that you will live with. I promise you, every person in the room, this temptation is stronger than you. And so the Bible tells us just to run away. Do you remember when we were talking about pornography, the principle I gave? It's a question. It applies here really well. Why battle a temptation tomorrow when you had the power to remove the temptation today? Do you know what's better than even running away from it? Never being around it. This is the principle being detailed here. Get away from the temptation. Get as far away as possible and don't return. Number three, keeping the marriage hot and holy. Buckle up. <laughs> My mother-in-law is not here today, so I'm excited. <laughs> Look at verse 1 of chapter 7. Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. So the Corinthian church had a list of questions. They mailed them to uh, Paul. And so he's returning this letter and answering these questions now. And they must have had a lot of questions about sex. Because he gives a big portion of the book to it. And he starts first with people that aren't married yet. And really it's a principle for everyone. And the principle simply is this. Keep your hands to yourself or your spouse. That's it. Keep your hands to yourself. The touch here is specifically touches that are meant to excite. It's not just sex. It's, it's sexual contact. Touch is meant to Excite. And he's saying it's a good thing for a man not to do that. In context, a woman not to do it too. Verse 2. Nevertheless, to avoid uh, sexual immorality, fornication, let every man have his own wife. Let every woman have her own husband. If you want to touch somebody, touch them. Verse 3. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body, but... The husband, and likewise also, the husband hath not power over his own body but the wife. Defraud ye not one of the other, except it be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again, 
that Satan tempts you not for your incontinency. Verse 9 says this, but if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. A couple things we learned, just real quick. We learned that sexual desires are not evil. Hey, friend, you know where you got those? From God. God gave them to you. And the reason why God gave them to you is so that you could raise children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It was one of the reasons. But he also gave them to you for your pleasure. That didn't get a single amen. It's the truth, though. You know, we have this idea that God is up in heaven, and he's looking down at some of his children having fun. He's like, no. That is not our God. God has made this for your pleasure. Yes, he did. He had this in mind when he gave it to them as a wedding present. So sexual desires aren't, aren't sinful. It's sexual expression outside of marriage that is sinful. Plainly stated, any touch that stimulates the sexual desires outside the confines of marriage is sinful. That's what is being expressed here. And then he moves to the folks that are married. And he begins to talk about them. Before we get to the passage, I just want to say a couple of things. I haven't really gotten to this point during the series, and I want to make sure I mention them now. We need to be careful not make marriage an idol. We need to be careful. The goal for singles in this room isn't marriage. Listen, if you never get married, it's not like you've missed out on anything in life that God wanted you to have. That was God's desire, and it is okay to stay single. You know who was single when they eventually went to heaven? Jesus. Do you know who was single that wrote this letter? The Apostle Paul. He never had a chance to get married. Listen, that's not, if you're single, it's not the goal. Marriage isn't the cure for your loneliness. I know plenty of married people here that are lonely. If you believe that your ultimate source of joy and contentment is a marriage relationship, you will be proven wrong really quick. I promise you will. It's no wonder many marriages fall apart because we're looking at another human being that's just as broken as we are and expecting them to fix us. And it never works that way. Really, all marriage does is highlight everything that's wrong. That's what happens. Jesus should be our ultimate source of joy and contentment. Keep marriage in the proper perspective. It can be joyful, but only if first our source for joy is Jesus. So let's get into the chapter. Verse number three tells us that we are to render due benevolence. It carries the idea that we have a debt when we get married. And the person that we owe the debt to is our spouse. The person that God gave to us. And the goal here is to realize we will never pay the debt back. Never. And so every day of our lives, we should be working off the debt. We should be working off the payment. Realizing we can never pay it all back. And the context is talking about this sexual fulfillment. The Lord is telling us that each partner has a responsibility for meeting the needs of the other. But when we get married, the needs of our spouse should trump our own. We give, we sacrifice, we love. Because this is what Jesus has modeled for us. It's also what Paul commands in Ephesians 5. In chapter 7, the intimacy needed to fulfill this command from Paul doesn't begin in the bedroom, though. It begins in the morning by making 
your spouse breakfast, by writing love notes, by sending sweet text, by holding hands besides protecting jewelry, by joking together, by playing games together. Notice I didn't gender any of those terms. Those jobs aren't just for men and those jobs aren't just for women. Marriage is a husband and wife together. What kind of marriage do you want? Do you want a marriage where you keep a record? This is all I do. My spouse isn't keeping up there into the bargain. I do this, do this, I sacrifice, I sacrifice. I do all the work. Do you want a marriage that's dead and dry? Never have fun together? A marriage that's all work, no play? So there's more stress and fighting? Friend, I promise you, you can't have passion and intimacy in a bedroom if you don't have passion and intimacy anywhere else. But if you begin to serve one another, if you're more consumed with their needs instead of yours, you'll both get what you want. What starts in the living room, praise the Lord, ends in the bedroom. Can I get a witness? When you've created an atmosphere of service in the home, it's just natural for it to follow into the bedroom. Look at verse 4. We, we see a devotion being expressed. We are told that when a couple comes together in a marriage relationship, they each lose something. Sure, we gain a spouse, but we lose our complete control over our bodies. Listen, you know, my wife gets to determine what I wear and things. There are some clothes that I don't wear anymore. Do you know why? She doesn't like them. She doesn't. There are some ways I've done my hair. She doesn't like them. I don't do my hair that way no more. Um, uh, because this is all hers, whether she likes it or not. <laughs> it's all hers. <laughs> we, we lose control. Now, this does not mean that we become the other person's slave to fulfill whatever whim and pleasure they may be seeking. What it teaches is that each places the other's satisfaction ahead of their own. Each possesses a desire to fulfill the needs of the other, and when that is accomplished, both find that they are fulfilled. I will say that while this is a command to both partners to be involved in the fulfillment of others' physical needs, there must also be mutual respect. This passage shouldn't be lorded over any individual. There will be seasons when this is not practical. There will be times when uh, one or the other just isn't interested. This should be respected. But at the same time, both partners need to come together as man and wife. And verse 5 bears out that point. There's a, a demand. The couple is told not to defraud the other. The word literally means to deprive. As should be clearly evident by now, the sexual relationship within a marriage has been ordained by God to meet the physical needs of the marriage partner. Unfortunately, many people are guilty of withholding sex from their partners. Some do so out of spite. Others do so out of an effort to punish. Some do it for others' equally um, selfish reasons. But whatever the reason, we need to be careful because it may be sinful. When you withhold sex from your spouse for any of those reasons, you're committing two terrible errors. The first is you're depriving your partner of his or her right 
to you as, your, as their mate. But the second one is the Bible tells us. Verse 5 says that you're opening the door for Satan to attack your marriage. Think about it. Before you were married, you had a hard time keeping your hands off of one another. I mean, Satan tempts us this way. I mean, verse number 9 talks about this passion that we have. And it's so hard to control, it's better to get married than to burn, right? Because this passion in the Bible is described as a fire. We talked about this. And if you play with fire, you're going to get burned. And so he, he's saying here that this passion before you get married is so strong, it is better to marry. But the sad thing that happens is after we get married, usually the passion goes out. I mean, many people have the impression that once they get married, you know, it's going to be a, a daily thing. In the first service, they laughed at that. <laughs> they, they thought there was going to be something they did every day, you know. Uh, I had this. I was thinking, man, I'm going to be Tarzan. She's going to be Jane. Can I get a witness? We're going to swing on the vine, <laughs> right? But then two months in, you're like looking at the brochure. Like, what in the world did I sign up for? Listen. Before marriage, we can't hardly keep our hands off of one another. It's not surprising that many times the opposite is true after. Think about it. If you don't find your passion in the marriage, the devil's going to try to turn that passion outside of the marriage. It's, it shouldn't surprise us that before we get married, the devil has set it up so that we want to be with one another and do things that aren't right at the time. But then when they get right and they're in time, the devil does everything to keep us apart. And all we're doing is inviting the devil into our home and allowing temptation to reside. But what did verse 18 tell us to do with temptation? Run from it. Hey, friend, your spouse needs you. Keep the romance alive. Build intimacy. Keep it hot. Come on, that's a good spot to say amen, married folk. Keep it hot. Verse 9 tells us that this passion is hot. We should do our best in our marriages to keep it hot. Whatever that looks for you. Whatever is, listen, God has given us freedom in the marriage relationship. There's not a lot of specifics in the Bible, and I'm not going to go over them right now. But God has given us freedom in the marriage relationship. Keep it hot be free in your marriage relationship listen maybe today all you need to do is read the book of song of solomon together or song of songs in your bible think about what solomon 1 2 says let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth for his love is better than wine Woo <laughs> proverbs five eighteen. are you all ready for this this is in the bible let thy fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of thy youth. So this is talking not to young people. This is talking to old folks. It says, let her be as a loving hind and a pleasant roe. When I wrote merely the first letter, that's what I called her. It says this, let her breast satisfy thee at all times. And it ends with be ravished always with her love. Listen to me. The Bible isn't prude. The Bible doesn't want to hide sex from you. The Bible tells us that it is good and we should be ravished in our passion for one another. Listen to me, friend. 
If your marriage isn't hot, if the bedroom isn't hot, you're doing it wrong. And that's the Bible. But it can be again. Today, we've been going through a series, and we end it right now. And it's proper that we end on this note. If marriage is hot, the passion's in the right place. But if it's not, it's probably a sign that the passion is somewhere else. Maybe husband and wife need to come up together or pray in their seats together and just pray. God, help me keep the fire in the fireplace. Would you please stand? Thanks for listening. If you'd like to join us in person, our services are at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. every Sunday. We're located at 700 North Walnut Creek Drive in Mansfield, Texas. You can visit our website at cbcmansfield.com or follow us at Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at CBC Mansfield. Thanks again for joining us.